The information in this podcast is educational in general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of In the Market Trenches. If this is your first time joining us, I'm Eric Fury. This is Gary Reby. Uh, happy to have you. If you've uh, listened to us before, remember we're available anywhere podcasts are available. You can check us out at inthemarkettrenches.podbean.com. We're also available at uh, snn.network or the SNN Network YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash snnwire. Uh, we're excited today. We have our guest, Kelvin Sito. Kelvin, thank you for joining us. It is a pleasure and I love the portrait that you have on the back. Yes, I saw this on uh, Etsy, and I just had to ha- had to get it. I, 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 we had to commemorate bought, this period of time. <laughs> I bought a mark that has the same guy. You know, I bought it at CSL. It's still not here yet. <laughs> <laughs> we need to remember this time somehow, and so we're doing it with our poster. Yeah, man. So thank you for joining us. Um, you know, for people that don't know you, do you mind starting off by just kind of sharing some of your background, um, how you got involved in investing uh, and, and kind of what the strategy is right now? Sure. So hey, everyone, uh, it's an honor to be here and thanks uh, thanks for inviting me inviting me to your show. Um, so for me, I, I did not really come from a very well-to-do family. Um, I'm, I'm actually born and, and raised in Singapore. So uh, a very typical uh, Asian, right? And uh, I think Asians, we are usually being taught to work really smart, to, to study really well. Um, so some of you guys joke that in Asians, we are really good at mathematics. Uh, we, we go in and, and we, we take on all the mathematic uh, stuff uh, in US as well. But I, I guess, you know, that, that's really how we are being raised, a culture that we have in Singapore. And uh, I always wanted to be the top in school. So I actually studied a business. I studied um, <coughs> banking as well. And I always realized that, you know, I somehow or rather I could not, uh, uh, you know, you know, you, when you can get A, that's, that's a nice, nice grade, right? But you want to be top in the class, that's, that's, that requires a whole different ball game. And mm-hmm. I tried for a few semesters and I couldn't get a grade that I, I couldn't get the ranking that I wanted. I, I grew a bit frustrated. I went to my lecturer who was formerly a farm manager. And he said, you know what, Calvin, if you're playing at a game and you're you are losing every time, what does it mean that you, you suck at this game, you know? Uh, why don't I challenge you something? Why don't you play at a game where no one is playing at for your age, right? Mm-hmm. So say here, you know, listen carefully. There's this book called The One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and read it. Go ahead and read it, right? I took that book, I read it, and it gave me that confidence that despite being a young kid back then, right? There was this chapter that's saying that a group of young kids have actually outperformed uh, the fund managers by choosing stocks that they understood the most. And that gave me the confidence to say, hey, you know, I may not have a degree, uh, yet, I may not have that uh, qualification, the MBA, uh, the investing experience, but that doesn't stop me from investing. So I started really applying what I've learned in school and what I've learned from the book into investing, right? And I started to to write on forums. And I really believe that despite being a young age, you know, it's very important for me to put my ideas out there. And, uh, you know, cut a story short, in Singapore, we have to go through national service. And by the time I was supposed to complete my national service, uh, I was being offered a job as an analyst working for a for a fund. <laughs> so I also gave up my university placement. So I didn't go for the degrees. Um, I gave up my scholarship, which is a prestigious scholarship uh, with a Singapore government as well. 
uh, to work there. And I think I was quite grateful for the opportunity. I, I gave it my, my, my all. Uh, I worked really hard. I, I started analyzing a lot of Asian companies um, in Japan, a bit of Australia companies as well. Um, but, you know, it came to a point of time, I realized that um, maybe when, you know, seeing the number goes up, after a while, it becomes numb. You see the PNL goes up, it becomes numb. I was just searching for more in my life. And I was, I, I did not really travel much as a young kid, you know, since I was young, all the way to adulthood, I, I wasn't traveling. I was just working hard, just like a typical Asian, right? This is like stereotyping, but yeah, we are like that. We just work really hard. Um, <laughs> so I, I decided to say, hey, you know, my popular has has grown a certain size, why don't I travel around the world? I travel around Asia uh, for about a year and a half, really to understand the culture, understand how people think, understand what the opportunities that we have in Asia. And by the time I came back to Singapore, I you know got invitations from people to say, hey, um, could you teach me about investing, right? And I thought that, you know, whatever I knew, I thought it was just really simple stuff. Um, mm -hmm. But I didn't expect people to say, hey, you know, I, I'll pay you 100 bucks for an hour. Could you teach me something uh, that you know? So I did that for a while. And one day I went home and, and you know, it was late at night. I sat on the sofa. It was, it was, you know, my mom just came up to me and said, hey, you know, son, aren't you uh, sort of financially comfortable? Why are you doing this? And I talked to her mama and said, yeah, you know, why am I doing this? Why don't I create something more scalable instead of doing one-to-one? -one, I do it like a mass class, right? Like one to 50, one to 60, whatever it is. And, you know, that was really the start of what, what I was doing, teaching people. But I also guess uh, after a while, people asked me, you know, do I want to manage uh, funds for them, you know, separately, uh, separately manage accounts, SMAs, right? So I started doing that uh, last year. Um, so that was actually uh, something, a uh, natural extension of, of what I believe in. I think at the end of the day, as investors, we also have to teach people as a form of contribution. Then I feel there's a tangible uh, benefit to, to the work that I do. Uh, but in terms of investing philosophy, I think I've uh, shifted uh, a lot uh, through my own experiences, through my exposure to uh, people in America when I speak to them, how they were investing. Uh, how I wish I actually started investing in America much earlier because in Singapore, we don't really have, I, I just have to be honest here, uh, we don't really have a lot of com companies that you would deem as compounders. We have very limited addressing markets. The government tends to take uh, uh, those very lucrative uh, industries. They tend to do a lot of control. It's not like an absolutely free market as compared to America. Um, I was investing in companies that I would say have uh, absolutely stagnant value. So I was just playing the multiple re-rating and recycling and just doing things uh, as a cycle. Uh, but as you could imagine, uh, obviously that's not a scalable strategy. That, that requires a lot of work, right? Um, so I eventually went to US um, and I saw a lot of uh, you know new companies, some I know of, some I do not know of. But uh, today the way I invest is really about uh, a growth investing strategy. I have a very high uh, benchmark for the companies that I have in my portfolio because I do believe that as investors, we are really lucky to have so many companies as around us. And, and we, we tell ourselves, you know, what are the top five companies that could make it to our portfolio, right? Then you really want to think about the really outstanding ones, right? And if anything that don't meet your criteria, they, they should not be in your portfolio in the first place. That dilutes the returns and that dilutes the quality of your portfolio. So uh, I'm very comfortable with uh, loss-making companies. In fact, uh, I, I think growth is a, a key component to that. I think we look at positive, uh, uh, positive unique economics uh, much more. Um, but I think uh, over the over this whole duration, I also learned a little bit more about investing. I realized we are not just investing in companies, but we are investing in people, uh, a visionary, um, a person's 
ability to execute, uh, a person's ability to uh, attract like-minded people to go on the same quest to create products that will kind of move the world forward. I think that's really important. Like, what's the value proposition of your product, right? Could there be any other substitutes, right? So I also narrow my my, my choice of industries to a few. Uh, one of my favorites, of course, uh, is a te- uh, internet businesses. I think uh, they tend to scale uh, beautifully. Uh, so uh, I just want to share that I, I do own shares in uh, C. C is one of my uh, favorite companies, but I also love companies in the med tech industry. Um, that's where I'm actually spending a lot of time to expand my circle of competence because I do believe that they are actually providing a better quality of care to patients uh, in, in many ways. And I think, um, you know, we are living in an in age where we have a lot of innovation to really make the world a better place. So uh, uh, to sum up, you know, I, I think we are living in exciting times. I think uh, investors that collaborate more, that actually put their work out there, uh, will tend to find uh, more successes uh, easier as compared to investors who are just doing work uh, by themselves alone you know in, in a small room so when you started out in investing it sounded like you focused mostly on asian markets and then you started a transition to u.s markets is that right yeah and, and i wish i had done that uh, earlier because uh, uh my compounding would have uh, been faster i mean <laughs> typically the kind of returns you can get in the asian market as i, I mean talk about singapore if you get a 15 20 percent return uh, that will put you in the in a good ranking in terms of Singaporean investors, but hey, you know, you go US, people making 80, 90% is, is kind of the norm because um, they are really choosing companies that, that that is in a hyper growth mode, right? So do you have any trouble making that transition? Yeah, it, initially I can tell you that uh, uh, in Singapore, I think we do have a statistics to say that uh, the, the, the percentage of population that uh, has a brokerage account actually is, is, is very low in, in Singapore uh, and also, having a brokerage account also doesn't mean that it's active, right? So those active ones are not a lot. So we can say that in comparative, uh, relative to US market, Singapore stock market is very sleepy. So there's sometimes you have one significant press release, but the share price still doesn't move. It's, it's kind of sleepy, right? Uh, which means the share price is not volatile at, at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is what I'm used to, right? So when I went to US, okay, oh boy, this is going down 6% and 9% the next day. And it kind of had those swings. So that was something that I I, I, have, to, I have to get used to, um, and also um, kind of learning what your thank you thank is, is basically the language that SEC puts out that 14A, uh, and also knowing who are the investors that I could actually follow, could actually network as well. But I guess after a while, um, you know, I, I just have to make the move for myself. Um, if I just want to compound my money much faster, right? Anywhere I believe uh, the best businesses. So this are I would go to, and I think I owe it to America's uh, free economy. And I think as long as you have a big dream, you want to make it happen. I think America is a place to go. But so, I still love Singapore. <laughs> you chalk up those differences. <laughs> no, I, I largely agree. And we've identified, I think, for us, as we, you know, we we have stuff that we do, um, and going outside the U.S., it's, it tends to be kind of um, there are market structure issues that just aren't appreciated by a lot of folks in our industry as they venture outside the U.S. and they sort of do it in a way that's a little less uh, witting. So if I'm understanding sort of your description of sort of why you chose to focus more on the U.S., uh, there's some level of government, there's more level of government involvement in in sort of the, the Asian public companies, either through 
ownership or you know whatever kind of interest the government is taking is it was that the primary am i correct and that's the primary driver so that sort of limits in your view the the upside associated with investing in those markets yes i i would think so and also uh, in singapore uh, i mean in korea in japan we have a lot of family-owned businesses so mm-hmm. sometimes you put your own people in place and how can you be tough on them right if they don't perform well you still keep, you still, you still let them stay there and and uh draw fat fat sal- uh, salaries and i think in in us I, i'm not sure if i'm getting this right but if uh the management is not doing a good job or whatever uh shareholders could just throw a lawsuit at them right I, i've seen it a few times i mean but, they buy a part of the company they file an activist thing and you know some presentation or whatever and they embarrass you know there's a lot of uh public shaming uh, that can go on. And, and if you make enough noise, sometimes you get some change. And yeah. there are instances in the US where that's not really possible. But, um, you know, as investors, Eric and I, when we read a proxy, and we see a lot of people with the same last name, or a lot of, you know, interfamily connection, like that's, 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 that's at least a yellow flag, but in a lot of instances, a red flag, depending on who it is. It, and uh, it's surprising to me that that people don't have that as a consideration when they go outside the US. They don't they don't think about that, but that's very, very common outside the U.S., probably even more so than in. Yeah, I mean, you're totally right on that, because sometimes when you want to be activist in Singapore, uh, go get another job. You you, you have successes in that. But I mean, in, in U.S., you know, some activists do succeed, and that kind of tells people that, hey, you know, you set a chance, you know, you have a fighting chance. At least it has been done before. Right. Yeah. So you mentioned your evolution. You started out, um, if I'm understanding this correctly, sort of with the Peter Lynch approach as a, as a youngster that sort of morphed into um, a, just what I would describe as sort of quantitatively cheap mean reversion trades that you were doing in Singapore and other Asian markets. And then you sort of evolved to somebody who's looking for more compounder type investments. Uh, I, I, I don't know if it would be correct to say a compounder bro, but that's, uh, <laughs> you know, but that's sort of where you are these days. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I would say so because at the end of the day, if you look at every uh, corporate life cycle, we call this the S curve, right? Like if it's proof of concept, you have commercialization, then you have scale, the scaling process. And I think very importantly, uh, I you know, I can't remember where I read this before. I read this uh, quote before. It says that well, you can be wrong on valuations, but you absolutely cannot be wrong on quality because if you are uh, wrong on valuations, you know it will be self-corrected, right? If you're wrong on quality, even if you buy a company that's cheap, you're gonna go hell. Because end of the day, uh, if it's a, it's a rotten, rotten apple, rotten business, no matter how cheap you buy, you're not gonna make money on that. So I, I focused a lot of time, uh, you know, analyzing the qualitative factors. Um, I think also uh, doing very uh, thorough due diligence uh, because I am also considered quite a concentrated investor. I hold less than five stocks. I think it's easier for me to focus, and I try to watch. Um, it like a hawk, and I think um, sometimes my biggest position may not be the one that has the highest upside, but you know it has is the one that has the highest level of certainty, right? So again, uh, uh, you know the reason why I like C a lot because you know you look at Google Trends, you look at uh, traffic visits, you look at app rankings. These are things that are very visible. Uh, these are you know I have ample alternative data to actually support the case to say, hey, your next quarter is it going to be a good year? Or, or if let's say you know I, I don't own this stock, but just for example to say, um, we have this uh, edge computing CDN business called Fastly, right? We ask ourselves, uh, for Fastly to grow next quarter, what are some signals? What are some telltale signs? How can we tell? I don't think I can find it that 
uh, easily. So, um, you know, I, I feel like, you know, if I'm just going for the highest upside uh, without certainty, uh, I feel that's a recipe for disaster for me. I think in anything that I do, you know, I can do it with a lesser returns, but I want to have uh, more certainty in my uh, approach when it comes to investing. Hmm. And and so how do you, what are your markers of, you said quality, right? And then, then compounding it. So, um, you know, what are your markers of of quality? What are some of the things that, that you've you've noticed historically in businesses that you've been involved <laughs> in? That yeah, but I, 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 I think- Quality to you. Yeah, so, you know, I, I you know I get your question, right? Your question is asking like, what are some quantifiers of significant? Like, what what signifies a quality business? It doesn't need to be uh, a quantitative insight. It could be a qualitative one. It it, it it it's not you know just but for you know what what's your what's sort of your definition of qual- of quality and how has that evolved over time? Yeah, <clears throat> um, you know, last time uh, when we talk about investing, we talk about uh, networks effects. We talk about about brand, we talk about efficient skill, um, but that was what I was being taught, right? But as, as I grew a little bit more into uh, the investing world, I realized uh, those are actually the, af- the after effects, right? Things that already happened. It's only after it happened, then you can see it. But what's, mm-hmm. what's before that, right? This was, was what creates this thing called emerging modes, right? And I think emerging modes just comes with with uh, something that's very basic, right? It's actually the, the product utility. How how valuable, what's the value proposition of this product in comparison with, with the alternative products, right? And I don't think it's just that alone, but it's also um, the customer obsession, right? How does the customer feels? I feel like, uh, you know, when we look at uh, Costco, right? Costco is always giving a people the feeling that, uh, you know, consumers are always getting a better end of the deal, and which, which creates loyalty, uh, loyalty, which creates a, uh, a huge uh, word of mouth as well. So the way I look at it is that I feel there's always two things that goes very well in business is customer uh, obsession and number two is the value proposition. But I think a value proposition is not just uh, that alone, but it's like how can a business incrementally add more value to the consumers, right? So I I, I do not own this uh, company, but just an example, right? Um, There's this company that... uh, that I know of called Wix, right? W-I-X.com. Wix is mm-hmm. actually a website builder, right? Mm-hmm. So now I got you covered on your website builder. And I realized that, okay, many people actually use my website to uh, to actually uh, open e-commerce stores, right? And and they need payment solutions. Uh, they need a, a, a website hosting. They need, uh, you know, when they want to design a website, they want to have a low code, right? It was drag and drop. And then that makes it easy. Make it make, make your life easier. So slowly, but surely, Wix has been taking over a lot of functions of what the customers truly need, right? It's a well-integrated uh, uh, tools provider. So I also feel that as, as you consume more of the tools um, that is being provided by a company, in a way you are being trapped, you are being tied into the ecosystem. And I also feel that uh, that makes the product eco- uh, mission critical, right? So for example, um, maybe in, in, in some broader sense, when I talk about quality is that uh, a business that a product that actually helps uh, end user to generate more sales. For example, if I'm using Shopify, so I, I don't own shares in Shopify, but let's say if I'm using Shopify and Shopify as a platform, uh, you know, to many of my friends, they, they told me that Shopify is like, it's like a lifeboat to many affected merchants, right? And and that is actually, it's a, a very mission, mission critical component of their business because if they just cancel the subscription to, to the Shopify, essentially they're closing down the store. So I always think about what is essential, what is mission critical, what is, what is sticky. And I think I have a huge preference for uh, revenues that are either repeating 
or, 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 or reoccurring, right? Reoccurring could be a uh, subscription, repeating could be a uh, Visa master swipes, could be uh, because I, I love the e-commerce the e platform Shopee so much, which is why I always go back because this is, this is a behavior, this consumer behavior. So I, I think there's a lot of ways we can look at quality, uh, but then, you know, it's not really easy to describe, but I feel like if I could describe it in a simple language, it's really how can you retain a customer and, and keep a, cu a customer happy, right? Because if a customer is happy every single time when he, they transact with you, then it's going to be a, a not just a one-time transaction, but it's going to be a lifetime value. And that's going to be beautiful, right? Because you have a good experience. Um, they're going to share it with their friends. And, you know, I, I feel that really wonderful businesses, they tend not to spend a lot of sales and marketing because their customers are their extension of their sales force, right? So I think it's, it's the same example of Costco, uh, Amazon. Uh, that's how I look at it. What was it? Was it Jeff Bezos that said that um, marketing is the price you pay for having a... Uh, inferior uh, product. What's that? Yeah. Uh, marketing is the price you pay for an inferior product. Yeah. 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 That's the one. Having yeah. an, un un an unexceptional product or so something like that. I, I, I'm, I'm butchering the quote, but it's something along those lines, I think. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was yeah. Wasn't it? Mm -hmm. All right. Cool. Everyone's fact checking me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So it sounds like you've been on quite a journey to get to the point that you're on. How long did this journey take? Like, how long have you been doing it? I would be embarrassed to say this. Uh, I'm investing uh, close to uh, uh, 10 years right now. Uh, but I would say the first four years I was in Singapore, uh, investing by myself. Uh, I wish I I wish I had someone who, who, who could teach me. I wish I would have uh, that exposure. Um, but, you know, I, I learned I learned throughout the year. So... One thing that stood with me, um, uh, you know, a friend of mine who told me, if you feel like you are always the smartest person in the room, it's time to switch room. So it came to the point, you know, I hope I'm not sounding arrogant here, but, you know, in, in Singapore market, uh, to master the Singapore market is relatively easy. And I felt like there was not much of a challenge anymore, right, in terms of understanding business models in, in Singapore, because it's really very simple uh, business models. Uh, we don't have software businesses, don't have too many software businesses in Singapore. So I, you know, I wish that I've told myself to actually look at the uh, American uh, American markets much faster. So I, I think when my wealth started to compound a lot better is is only the uh, fifth year onwards. So I think the first five years, I'm not sure what I was doing. Okay, uh, but I'm glad that the second half of the uh, decade, you know, it it, it became a, a lot better. Otherwise, uh, I'll be quite sad about it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Well, I mean, if you're not evolving, I think it's uh, if you're not growing, you're dying. I yeah, think it's sort of our view of, of the yeah. investing. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's, uh, that's our view on things. If we're not learning something, it's a day wasted. And if we're not evolving a little bit, it's uh, uh, we're, we're getting worse. We're not getting better. So I agree with you. Um, could you would you be uh, just willing to share with us maybe one of the an investing experience that, that you learned a lot from? Uh, you know, something maybe uh, either you're not involved in anymore, or just whatever. You know, what, what's what's next? Because a lot of times we find the experience of owning something and having been through the ups and downs of it, and it, maybe it worked out, maybe it didn't. But like that experience, uh, you know, is usually the best teacher. Uh, and usually, it's for us. It's usually when we we learn something. Is usually we lost money when we learned something. We it was counted as a blessing when we learned something and we didn't lose money. So. Uh, 
is, is there an experience you'd be just willing to share with us? And, uh, and, take, and take us through the process, Hang on, how you found the name, how you initiated maybe, some of the research. Maybe what you thought at the time, and then as it evolved, how your thinking changed and sort of maybe just some of the lessons learned. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, do you want me to start with a Singapore one or a regular one? <laughs> Your choice. Okay. Best choice. Yeah. Just Singapore yeah. first, because yeah. we'll, we will. I'm guaranteed we'll know practically nothing about it. We'll have the <laughs> we'll have the most naive questions, but they might be better ones. All right, sure. So uh, in Singapore back then, we, I uh, I invested in this company called uh, High P International, so H I P International. So that that business has been uh, privatized by the founder. Okay. So what they do, they are a uh, assembler for iPhones, right? So at a point of time, um, iPhones, I think it was uh, 2016 or 2017, yeah, around there. Okay, uh, I think iPhone, Singapore version of Foxconn, is that a fair way to, to think about it? I think it's, yeah, I think you could say that, you could say that, uh, much sm uh, smaller uh, in scale, definitely. Um, so they have a client called uh, Apple, right? So they are manufacturing uh, iPhones for them. Um, I, I think in typically, if you look at a value chain, uh, OEM, uh, original equipment manufacturer or subcontractor, uh, they don't earn fantastic margins, right? So at a point of time, um, I, I don't think I was investing uh, a lot in uh, uh, America. I was investing a lot in Singapore. And I, I, I do, do notice that, okay, you know, you have a revenue that's growing not at a very rapid rate, perhaps about uh, 15 to 20%. But what the business is doing is that they are, reducing a lot of operational wastage in the business. So what you see is that you have a business that has a 1% margin, moving up to 2% margin, just like that alone, you have a 100% increase in operating profit, right? Just because of um, uh, cost efficiency. But I also do know that there are certain limitations to cost efficiency. You, you still need, a, you know, at the end of the day, you still need manpower to actually run your, your business. So there's a certain limit to that. So I was looking at that, I was looking at that, and I was saying, you know, this business from an enterprise value to a, to a free cash flow is trading only like five, four to five times. Uh, if I look at comparable peers, uh, actually it's, it's really, really low. And if they can push it up to be about three to four margin, uh, three to four percent uh, margins, I think uh, uh, that would be uh, really, really great, right? So I look at that, I think, okay, you know, there's a lot of uh, high possibilities doing that. In fact, it has started taking effect already. And I say that if I'm in for about three to four quarters, um, I, I, I'm sure I'm going to make a lot of money. So was part of the I, idea that, that their business was growing and they would get some operating leverage on their cost base. And so that 1%, they, that, that, that margin expansion would come from operating leverage as opposed to like cost cuts. Is that a fair way to think about it? Yeah, I would say uh, you have some four to 5% top line growth. You have that uh, cutting of your operational SGNA causes. So you have a huge operating leverage that, that comes from both sides, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I tend to be a concentrated investor. I look at it and say, hey, you know, this is too great of an opportunity to kind of like uh, pass it up. So uh, it became a very big position for me. I made, made a lot of money on that. And I think, you know, I, I actually um, then, uh, you know, sold the stock, you know, feeling like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a champion. Um, you feel like a genius. Oh, genius, yes. Uh, uh, this this kind of set I'm uh, talking about this, but uh, three weeks later, they declared a dividend, a jumbo dividend, huge one. Okay, so context, right? In in, in Singapore, we, we we favor, we love companies that pay dividends. So when they declared the dividends, the, the share price actually jumped once more. Mm -hmm. And after the dividends being paid, 
of course the share price went back down a little bit and then uh, next quarter they reported a huge growth in in earnings once again and the share price proceeded to double up again so i would say that you know if i held on to the stock at that age i would have been a millionaire already you know so uh, of course i didn't really uh, uh you know i sold too early right so that's my lesson and sometimes i i think about i think about it i i you know i I was kind of sad because you know if I would have held on for maybe just another three to four months, I could have bought a uh, uh, apartment in Singapore uh, with full cash down, right? I don't have to take on any debt and loan, and that's a lot of money. I could travel around the world. Maybe I might not be uh, working already today because if I from then I compound my money onwards, I, I felt like I, I let myself down, and I felt like you know despite uh you know thinking that I'm good in investing, you know, why did I sell it early? But, you know, looking back, it was, it was, it was a lesson that I've learned to not sell early, too early. And I think sometimes, uh, maybe as a young investor, I've never seen such huge uh, PNL on my, on my portfolio before. And it kind of scares me a little bit. Uh, mm. But I feel like, I feel like um, sometimes uh, having that investing knowledge alone uh, will not make you rich, but you also must have the psychology and the temperament to manage huge amount of money that you must be comfortable with huge numbers right because sometimes huge numbers uh while we think that it's nothing much but when you see huge numbers on your portfolio you might feel like you you know you might lose it anytime so that was my feeling as, as a young investor back then uh of course you know it took me uh i don't know you know it, it sounds it, you know it, it's supposed to be a celebra uh, celebration right ma ma making so much money but it turned out to be something i was quite sad off because it doubled uh after after the price, uh, from the price I sold it, I was feeling a bit depressed. Uh, two to three months, uh, you know, after that event, because look at the share price that keeps going up, you know. But I, I, I said to myself, you know, that was a, a great lesson that I, I took away, you know, not to sell, uh, stocks too early. Um, in fact, I also asked myself, uh, you know, I mean, now in US, right, applying that lesson to US, um, I, I think US is a great place. We have a lot of great companies. Um, in fact, a lot of businesses that 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 are outside of America wants to live in at uh, least in US because of the valuations that they can get as well. And so I truly ask myself, what are the companies that are truly exceptional in the world, right? I, I don't think there are many. I think there's only a few uh, really good companies that are well managed. So if if that's the case, right, then you know, just borrowing a, a, a borrowing a sentence from 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 Buffett, right? So where's the best time to sell? It's really never, right? So. Uh, because of that lesson I learned back then, you know, I held on to really good companies for for a long period of time, and uh, today, you know, I'm looking back, you know, I'm pretty glad that you know I actually uh, sold early and went through the experience. Because if it went through and and I still did not learn my lesson, or maybe sometimes to simplify things, right? I think all of us just will just have to go through those lessons to just become a better investor uh, 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 over time. So. I still have some bit of regrets as I'm speaking right now, uh, but I think I, I should just, you know, drive looking forward and not just well, keep so it sounds like you, that, you with that particular company, you sort of had an idea of what it could or should be. And, and it also you know, sounds it, like you have a time frame which you thought it would play out. You said three or four quarters. I mean, you know, for, I mean, it was the lesson for you. I mean, it seems like that's the, that, that, like as a contract manufacturing business, it's not the highest quality business in the world. So, were you, would you be comfortable holding, like, really holding onto it that long as it was anyway? I mean, like, it, as opposed to something that had, you know, really great returns on capital, sort of open-ended growth runway. You know, you know, 
it seems to me like one of the one of when you just just let's take away the names and just say like you've got a contract manufacturing business that has some capital intensity and is low margin versus something that has open-ended growth and better margins and returns on capital it seems to me that maybe one of those is just easier to hold for a long time and and allows you to be more permissive on the valuation but maybe i'm thinking yeah is, is I, I, I think you're right uh, i went with a game plan that i will hold in a few quarters uh but i came out too soon before uh, the full potential and full margins was being uh, realized uh, but uh, you know despite that um, i think the same lesson I, i've still learned um, in a case you know before even a company have unleashed its full potential in terms of growth rates or whatever it is the margins uh, if you sell it too early i, I think uh, i think that's that's a mistake yeah yeah interesting so, <laughs> so was that was that experience um is that how, part of what part of your pivot to more, go more go more towards the us with the open-ended growth runway for some of the companies here was that was that influential in that decision or was that sort of just um yeah yeah i think you could say that because um then you know like you you made x amount of money then then what's next right you probably have i, I what, what i had to do was to look at another company and just say you know can how much money can i deploy and how much money can this stay in that company before i have to recycle rinse and, rinse and repeat and recycle right mm-hmm. kind of yeah. sick of that right it's like having too many relationships all over again i want to be a devoted person right so i went to you uh, went to us i i you know realized okay there's such thing as uh companies that have uh, that's operating in huge addressing markets they have uh well-managed uh management who really could execute and it could be a name could be a company name that i could hold for four to five years and and that seemed to be a lot more easier to mm-hmm. make more money right so less effort but uh, more money uh you know and i think um Every time when I open the books to start researching a company, it's like creating a new relationship with a company. You want to understand the management team, understand the history, the products, how customers thinking about it, what's the net promoter score, NPS. Um, so as and also of course you know performance, uh, uh, perform maintenance due diligence, right? And that's easier as compared to you know restarting the whole due diligence process. So I would say uh, that. W- that you know that that was partially a catalyst as well. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So you want to switch over to the U.S. story? Yeah. Let's let's, let's come home to the U.S. Okay, let's, let's go All right, the man. Up. Here we go, man. The land of the freedom, right? Okay. So this company is called um, Intelligent Systems. Uh, just for uh, that you that you own right now. Yes. So oh. I just want to uh, disclose that I own shares in it. All right, so just a uh, disclaimer. So, um, <clears throat> so what a company does is uh, they are actually a payment uh, 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 issuer, right? So, uh, payment processor is- uh, on on the issuer side. So you think about every credit card that's being issued from your Chase Bank, from your Wells Fargo's. Um, you know, every every card has to be processed, right? Mm-hmm. So the biggest players uh, is FinServe, uh, First Data, Global Payments, and you have a small player called. Uh, uh, Intelligent Systems Corporation. So how I got to know about the company was Bloomberg actually ran an article on it. They say that um, Goldman Sachs, um, um, uh, you know, they actually partnered with this tiny Georgia firm to actually push out this Apple Cut product. So you know, Goldman Sachs, someone that has a uh, very high reputation on the street. Um, what they, I mean, I would have think that they would have a lot of stringent checks 
you know they want to work with a bigger player like Finster, for example, whatever the players are out there. But yeah, they actually chose one of the bigger card card com card companies, right? Card yeah. issue. Yeah, but they, they instead actually work with uh, intelligence system corporation. As I as I look into the company uh, a lot more, I realize they have incredible uh, technologies in terms of uh, creating uh, flexible uh, payment plans. Um, they are really very agile and they are very uh, forward thinking. So in terms of the, I mean, I hope I'm not going to too technical stuff, but uh, a lot of the old processing environments in the, the payment industry is coded in Cobalt and that is not easy to modify. So whenever, you know, clients want to have some flexibility in terms of the product feature, it's going to be really hard. Um, but, um, uh, intelligence system corporation technology infrastructure of basically old banking and payments essentially right right but intelligence systems is being coded in in a, in a modern language which allows for a modular uh, uh, modification and editing and that's that's actually a better uh, product and I and I would assume that's the reason why Comex went with them um, and and they they have kind of about 20 staff in uh, Georgia and Georgia is actually where all the payment companies are and most of their programmers, high value programmers are based in India, right? So um, there's this short seller called Grizzly Bear uh, actually wrote a short report on intelligence systems, say that they are nothing but a glorified outsourcer and they say that uh, a lot of revenues uh, had some round tripping as well, okay? Uh, because, you know, you have very high margins, right? It's, it's like you earn in US dollar, but you pay your people in 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 the Indian uh, Indian currency, and and you know basically casted a lot of doubt about the management uh, ability and the product as well. And I also think to add some fuel to the fire, uh, one of the Indian Indian uh, Indian uh, one of the director, right, was actually someone that has a very uh great history of uh, fraudulent. Of fraud activities, so you know you have this independent director that's questionable that's in your company, right? That also maybe tells you something about about the company. Maybe it's not clean, and furthermore, the CEO uh, who is a uh, Leland Change uh, is being rumored. I'm not sure, but being rumored uh, to go to church with that independent director, so they are close friends. So I'm not sure it, as close friends could there be some influence uh, in the way how he would have run the company. So, I mean, with, with all companies that I invest in, I spend a lot of time uh, uh, with them, nurturing relationships. So when the short report came out, I think the, sh the share price tanked uh, a lot, quite significant enough to raise some uh, uh, red, uh, red bells, alarms. Uh, um, so of course I, I did I did panic uh, um, a little bit, you know, first time things like that happen. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think one of the valuable things that I, I like working in a space um, you know, so I invest in very big companies, which I call the flying elephants, but uh, my main core expertise is really into the small micro caps as well. So back then, I think intelligent systems was also considered like a small cap. So I had a direct uh, phone call. So I called Leyland Strange to, to find out what was happening. Um, and I think he gave the assurance, um, although it wasn't very, uh, 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 very uh, clear, but you know, it felt some assurance. And I also feel also, what he did subsequently was a few days later, he did a conference call and to really uh, refute the claims one by one, you know, really, really clear, really, really good. And I think sometimes uh, when I 
invest in companies. Actually, to, to be frank, to be to be really, uh, it's, it's kind of funny. Like in the first few years, whenever I invested in any companies in US, most of them, you know, received short sellers report. I also invested in this company called previously. I, I don't own it right now. PaySign. It also had a short report, right? So I don't know why, you know, it's just unlucky or whatever, right? But um, let's come back to the Intelligent Systems Corporation. So I guess at the end of the day, what I've really learned from this whole incident, you know, um, after, you know, Leyland Strange did a clarification, I think the share price uh, shot back up, you know. So I think at the end of the day, um, you know, what, what I really learned is that, you know, short sellers report, you know, there could be a lot of them, right? Um, sometimes it could be look as if it's very uh, credible, but uh, you know, we really have to do our strong due diligence to really understand, you know, how are the facts uh, arising, and sometimes facts could be uh, uh, misinterpreted, mispresented to actually uh, uh, bring out some uh, um, fear, you know, in terms of the shareholders. So I think it's really understanding the management team, building good relationship with them, never being too close to them, you know, have to be, have to draw the line, but always asking themselves, you know, about their vision. Uh, about about uh, and, and sensing they are just sensing their character right so um, and I think uh, I think it's probably a good gut check you have some, a report that comes along that you know you know you have something that does something to a position of yours like that and like it makes you challenge your own thinking is yeah. there did you have any blind spots so I, I was quite thankful because it, it did challenge my my thinking and it it made me more convinced about the quality of the business. Uh, but of course, I think short sellers report. Uh, they, short sellers they do play a role, because subsequently, uh, it, uh, INS Intelligence Systems actually removed that independent director away. So, uh, and I think they, they they sort of work a lot more on their IR slides on the website to make it more credible because uh, their website wasn't uh, really uh, updated. And I think people are thinking, you know, th there could never be some good technology that's coming out from a website that's in the nineteen nineties or nineteen eighties kind of look. So. Um, at the end of the day, I, I think my learning lesson is really uh, knowing the management team really well. And I think uh, every investor has to do this because, uh, like I say, you know, we don't invest in companies, we invest in people, right? So the ability to read through people, to understand who are they really are, do this, do, you know, whatever they say, uh, is it really true, you know? And it takes some skill. I, I don't think I'm, I'm perfect yet. Uh, but over time, as I speak to management teams, I, I do like Zoom calls, I, I do calls. Um, phone calls, I, I started to get a hunch and a you know, certain sensing about, about people. I think that's very important. I think overall, not just investing, but you want to be successful in life. You got to know how to read people and know how to avoid people who, who, wants, who wants to do bad things to you. Yeah. yeah. And it's important, Eric and I have noticed over time, that's good to get a base level of interaction with, with the management team. And then, you know, you can sort of get a sense for, you know, what kind of behavior, you know, what kind of responses seem a little off from from them, you know, like you in either you, direction. Do you understand? You hear when they seem to be a little bit more excited about something, or if something comes out, and they may say everything's okay, but you still hear it kind of in their voice that they could be a little nervous. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But you know, with what you think you might hear versus what you actually hear, but it's 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 helpful over time. For we've noticed. Yeah. Yep. Okay. I appreciate you sharing both the stories with us. Uh, you have a really unique background and journey in how you got to where you are. Um, it seems like you kind of broke away from what you what you described as kind of the traditional path for 
for you. Um, what advice would you have for someone that's starting out that you may be in your shoes that you were in 10 years ago? Yeah, I, I mean, that, that's a very fantastic question. Uh, I, I, so the way I look at it is, you know, like every investor out there, they will have their own unique experiences, you know, like, like what you guys all call it, the war stories as well. I think uh, if you are a young investor, you know, um, just get out there, you know, really talk to investors that you, you respect a lot and hear from the stories, hear from the experiences, um, ask good questions like what you guys have just asked, you know, what are some uh, uh, companies that actually provided you the, 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 the most experience, uh, most uh, learning takeaways uh, because, you know, all, I, I, I think investing is so dynamic, right? And I, and I also think that investing is, 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 is so interesting. It's like we are piecing puzzles day by day, collecting data points. Um, it's, it's, it's a mixture of human psychology, it's a mixture of marketing, it's a mixture of business. It, there's so many elements that goes with investing. So I don't think you know we can absolutely learn uh, investing straight off the books. We also have to uh, blend in a little bit of our experiences. Um, so I think sometimes you know they say, uh, if you want to learn slowly, you know, pick up a book and, 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 and learn from there. You probably spend like two days to learn the contents of the book. But if you want to learn in an assertive manner, then you, you know, surround yourself with very high caliber investors. Hear from the stories, right? Um, so like today, as I was teaching a lot of investors, you know, they, they, they learn. They didn't have to go through five years of my experience, you know, lost in the, in the, in the, in the desert, you know, before finding the, the honey land, right? Which is in America, right? Uh, but I still love Singapore, I just want to say that, right? Um, so you see, so I mean, the point I want to put across is find good people with good results, you know, don't just find people who are making like 5 to 10% returns in the stock market, find people who are constantly be making like 30, 40, 50, even, right, performance consistently, right? So you don't want to waste your time, you want to learn from people who have, who have done it consistently, not just for one period of one year, two year, but consistently, right? Um, and there is never in, there's, there's always things to learn from them, right? So I think more importantly, my advice to, to investors who are starting out, um, learn to be a good human being, right? Learn how to uh, connect with people, learn how to network with people such that they would love to spend time with you. Make yourself someone useful, make yourself someone memorable, right? Um, mm -hmm. Maybe sometimes uh, you could be new to investing, but you could offer things like, hey, you know, uh, could I work for you for like three months straight uh, for free? Uh, and, and, you know, during the process, you learn a lot, right? I mean, you work for free for three months, but maybe the lessons you learn could be five years worth of lessons, right? So I, I think it's really how you can add value to people such that people just want to give you more and more and more, right? Instead of just saying, oh, you want to ask me this question? I, I may not want to reply you because you're you are not providing me value in the first place, right? So um, if I want to summarize things is be useful to, to other investors. You know, you want to work for them for free. You want to do analysis for them for free. Just go ahead. And second, you know, uh, learn how to uh, really uh, spot good investors, right? Identify them and find out a way on how best you can approach them in a way that they can't reject you. Okay, so just 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 offer up an irresistible offer put, such that they want to work with I you. Summarize: put put yourself out there and try to meet some folks, learn some things, and uh, contribute to the conversation. And hopefully, you get better over time. You said it really well. Yep. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Where can people go to find out more about you or to, uh, to follow you and, and hear what you're up to? All right. So you could actually find me on Twitter. Uh, that's called a slingshot uh, cat. So um, if I could spell it out, it's, uh, give me a while. 
It's uh, S-L-I-N, um, S-H-O-T-C-A-P, right? So there's Slingshot Cap. Okay. Great. Yep. So, uh, you know, if, 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 if any one of you guys uh, follow me on uh, Twitter, just come say hi. Uh, I, I think it's always nice to connect with more people um, on, on Twitter as well. We will be doing that. Great. Thank you so much for being on the show, Kelvin. We uh, we really enjoyed it. And we appreciate it. Um, yeah. Good. I said, and for for anyone else that's listening, remember you can check us out anywhere podcasts are available. It's in the market trenches.podbean.com. We're also available at SNN.network or the SNN YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash SNN wire. Yep. Kelvin, thank you again. Thanks thank a lot, you, Kelvin. Great. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. The information in this podcast is educational in general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.